0: Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We had a lot of moving parts going on this morning, but I'm really excited to dive into this new series with you all. It actually doesn't feel all that new because if you've been here for a little while, you know we spent a long time this past year in various parts of the Book of Acts, which as you remember is part of a two-part series written by the Apostle Luke, or uh, the um, disciple of Jesus, Luke, no, sorry, not an apostle. Um, So the Gospel of Luke And the book of Acts sort of tailed together as as two parts by the same author of the same ongoing story. And so we started off last year a long time talking about the early church and how we could learn from them what it looked like to be this new fellowship that was forming. And this year we are going to spend a lot of time looking at the life of Jesus We were talking about this. We are one of four congregations, um, and we were all gathered together and talking about sermons for the next year, and um, Dave from Uptown just pointed out, you know, things can get really messy. The church can really mess things up sometimes. Politics and science and faith all get conflated. Things can be messy, but Jesus is really compelling, and so we just wanted to spend a long time looking at the person, at the life of Jesus during his earthly ministry. I have this great book that I read, um, just knowing how many people are experiencing like doubt and deconstruction, reconstruction, all of that. Um, this is a really helpful book. I really enjoyed it. But the author, um, A.J. Swoboda, it's called After Doubt. He said this, um, he said, the truth is maybe Christianity, so many in our culture today are, are rejecting, isn't Christianity Often they're rejecting false Christianity. They simply haven't tasted the real Jesus yet. Or they've tasted Jesus and rigid religion has proven to be a poor substitute. Read Jesus and tell me he isn't worth following. Look at Christ and dare to say his way of life is not worth giving up everything to follow. That's what we're gonna be doing this year. We're just gonna be spending a lot of time with Jesus. So in the Gospel of Luke, We um, actually just spent Advent in the lectionary in Luke's passages on the narration about the birth of Jesus. That was where we've just been um, through December is looking at this miraculous birth story. Um, And actually, I just would want to take a quick pause right here and say also on your QR code, I think there's a link there or there's definitely a link to reach out. If you don't own a Bible and you would like one, I would love to connect with you and get you one. Uh, We'll figure out which one is the right one for you and we will make that happen. So if that's something that you need in your life, I would love to connect with you and make that happen. Okay, so the arc of the story, right? In Advent, we spent uh, we were in the first three verses, uh, chapters of Luke. Uh, Luke and Matthew are the two Gospels that tell any part about the birth of Jesus. The other Gospels start out in this moment, in the baptism that we're going to talk about today. But Luke looks at that miraculous uh, moment leading up to the birth of Jesus and the miraculous birth of John the Baptist. And he he enters into that story from Mary's perspective, which is really sweet. We see the events surrounding both Elizabeth and Mary as cousins as they both are um, part of this miraculous story that's being um, brought forth. So Luke has a couple of stories from Jesus's early years, a few, and we see within those that first of all, of course, the angel Gabriel has told Mary what's going to transpire. So she's heard it directly from the angel, but then that's confirmed again through these quick prophecies that we see with Simeon and uh, and Anna, both uh, confirming this miraculous fact to Mary. And We know a little bit, one of the things that we know that's important just in knowing about Jesus' life, little snippets we get, right? That when Mary and Joseph went to the temple to um, offer an offering for this firstborn son, they left at the temple a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And that little snippet alone that Luke gives to us lets us know that Mary and Joseph were very poor. Because in Leviticus, we see that when the uh, offering is listed in uh, Leviticus 12.8 of what to bring to the temple as an offering for your firstborn son, uh, it's to to bring a lamb. But if you are too poor, you can bring a pair of turtle doves or young pigeons. I bring that up because there's a whole lot about Jesus' upbringing that we don't know. But we know he came from this This little town, and we know that they were so poor that they had to take advantage of that Leviticus um, offering from God to to have an alternate sacrifice. Jesus grew up poor in this little town, but then there's years we don't know anything about. But we know that Mary and Joseph are two poor, simple people raising the Messiah. They're parenting the Son of God, and there's there's a big absence of information then for a while. But we know that when this prophecy about Jesus being the Messiah was confirmed by um, these other people along the way, Anna and Simeon, for example, Luke says, Mary treasured these words and pondered them in her heart. As a mother, I think about Mary and I think about how long of a gap there must have been between that moment of the miracle and encountering an angel, Like, right? That's such a big moment. Then there's a lot of years of raising a kid. And then there's a lot of years of him growing up and not being sure. You guys, he was... 30, Luke three twenty-three tells us, when he starts into his public ministry, what must she have been wondering for so many years? How is this gonna go down? I haven't heard a peep about this in so long. Like, there's so much there. And I love that Luke says that she pondered those words and treasured them in her heart because Mary would have been the one to, to tell that story. I had to hold those words in my heart because there were a lot of, that's how it got to the gospel writers was Mary's own testimony. I love that. So there's a lot that we don't know for a while, but here we are. In the baptism of Jesus, all four Gospels begin their Jesus story, the part about Jesus' earthly ministry, with this baptism moment. You know it's a really big deal when all four Gospels have the same elevation of a moment that happened from all of their perspectives. Matthew and Luke, like I talked about, talk about the miraculous birth. Mark starts right out with this moment. This is Mark's like, let's get to the point. And he starts right off with the baptism with John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. John's a bit more poetic. He's got that beautiful uh, intro and then straight same thing to baptism. So it's clearly very important. And all four of them confirm this very important role of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who also, as we know from Luke's story, was the result of the miraculous encounter uh, bet- with uh, Zechariah and the angel. And Elizabeth became pregnant when she was too old. Um, So anyway, John the Baptist is a really big uh, deal in this story, and I want to point this out because he was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that would come before the Messiah came. So uh, the angel Gabriel in Luke 117 says about John the Baptist, he will go before the Lord in spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready, a people prepared for the Lord. So this is the one who would come before to say, it's coming, it's time. And we knew that there was going to be one before because Isaiah's prophecy uh, confirms this and John uh, echoes this in the Gospel of Luke saying from Isaiah the book of Isaiah as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet a voice of one calling in the wilderness Prepare the way for the Lord make straight paths for him So John's whole job is to be the one who was expected to come first to say get ready you guys It's happening And remember John's prophetic voice has just come out of the wilderness after approximately 400 years of prophetic silence before The moment of Pentecost, when all believers were given uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Before that time, the people of God depended on prophets who were especially anointed by the Spirit with a message from God. 400 years they had been waiting for the one to come from the wilderness and say, it's time. That thing that I promised is happening. And then here comes John, and all four Gospels confirm that. So this piece of the moment, the, the puzzle pieces of both John the Baptist crying out and Jesus being baptized is a really important moment in the launch of Jesus's ministry. And people are listening. They're responding, people are hungry. What I hear in that is that they are hungry for this 400 year silence to be at an end. Even if they don't maybe know what it's gonna look like, they are hungry and they're ready. We see in, we're we're gonna really dive in to two verses today. Uh, Luke 3 21 and 22 and we're going to see what we can glean from it. In the first part it says here all the people were being baptized. This just sounds like crowds right? People were responding. John was saying hey it's time get baptized be made clean and people were like yes we are hungry we will do that. I owe the next little piece of research here to one of my friends in seminary named Heather Hart who did some uh, research on this immersion baptism because that was not a common practice in the Jewish tradition. It was a known practice. So there would be some moments where there would be a full immersion cleansing in water in Jewish tradition. There were some uh, some it, it did mark a moment when one needed to be made ritually clean again, but it also was the process. If you were a non-Jew and you came to follow God and you wanted to be sort of grafted into the people of faith, that was a full immersion baptism into the Jewish faith. So John kind of is calling people to do something that wasn't in their norm. It wasn't in their vernacular in this way, like it is for Christians now, right? So it was something a little bit new, but he's taken these themes, uh, alluding to spiritual cleanliness, conversion, and something new to come, and he wraps them all up in this invitation. Come, be made clean. This water would represent being morally made clean to be ready for what it is that God is about to do. And so John's crying out, you guys, it's time for this really big cleaning because God's about to move. And they are like, yes. And they're coming to him and they're being baptized. Water baptism to be cleaned. But even John seemed to know that one would be coming who would be baptizing or cleaning even more than he could with water. He says, Jesus' baptism will be with Holy Spirit and with fire, meaning truly purified, not just washed clean, but uh, refined. So this future Christian baptism, that which we celebrate now through Jesus, is the purifying of the fire and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, those two things together, all together more than the baptism that Jesus, or that John is calling people to. But back to John's baptism, this is a, hey, be submerged to be washed clean and be ready. And scripture tells us that Jesus was baptized too. Again, the first moment that Jesus appears on the scene Uh, For a long, long time. We have so little of the record. We had that one little moment when he was 12. He was born, and then he was 12, and now he's 30 and he comes out to be baptized. And in this moment, in these two verses, we see that as Jesus is coming out of the water, the Spirit descends in the form of a dove upon him, and the voice of the Father breaks forth from heaven and speaks these clear words and saying, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So we stand here as an onlooker on this baptism scene, and we see Jesus coming out of the water, dripping wet, and we might take a moment and ask, why? He didn't need to be made clean. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, but we, yet he did not sin. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? A lot of Really smart people, smarter than me, have spent a lot of words, a lot of ink on this question that is a little bit of a mystery, but I want to step away from sermon mode for just a moment because it's a good question. It's really good to ask questions like that of Scripture, but but the fact is, like I, I, I can't promise that I can answer it, so I'm going to step away from sermon mode for a minute and just give you my Melissa Pillman thought on this question that's really good. I don't think that asking the have to, why did he have to, question around baptism is the fullest, richest approach to this conversation. I personally don't think you have to be baptized to be saved. You be saved through faith in Christ alone. So grace, right? It's not that about if, if Jesus had to be baptized to be cleansed. He already was without sin. We know that. So what is the question? Well, the question is our posture around baptism is more of a like, not about have to, it's how do you respond to an invitation like this? An invitation that has been made to us. Baptism is an invitation, yes, to say I want to fully enter in knowingly and willingly, put myself in line with Jesus's self, to be submerged into his, his death, his sacrifice, and to be resurrected up fresh into new life. Like, Jesus invited me to that. Never mind have to, like, yes, please. It's a, a response, a posture of response to that invitation. Uh, just so you know, I feel like these are little moments to just like to talk about some things that the church should talk about. In the Protestant faith, there are two Holy sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, what we partake in every week. The reason that we have two is that these are the two things that Jesus very specifically and clearly said do this. Do this thing. This is, if you're following me, this is something special that you're invited to. Every week, every time you take the bread and the cup, do this in remembrance of me. That's an invitation, it's not about a have to. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Let them enter in to my, my uh, sacrificial uh, death to self and resurrection to new life. Enter them into that with Holy Spirit and with fire. It's an invitation. So I just point this out that these, these sacraments, um, they're special to us. We take them seriously because there's a special grace involved, a special spiritual presence of the Holy Spirit involved when we say yes to these invitations, these instructions from Jesus to enter into his, his way of life through the Lord's Supper and through baptism. These are a grace, they are, they're a gift. Um, and I just, I feel like the have to question kind of misses the mark on that, on that tone. So that was my little aside. Baptism's really cool, by the way. If you are somebody who would wanna talk more about being baptized, about baptism, I would love to have that conversation with you. We love to celebrate baptisms. Okay, there we were on baptisms for a minute, but we need to go back to our scene. This is a different baptism. This is with the, the water and with John the Baptist. But interesting here, Luke has spent a lot of time on the importance of John the Baptist, right? He's the one who tells the story of Elizabeth to begin with. He tells this story in the preceding verses here where uh, we talked about a couple weeks ago where John's just preaching it here. What does it mean? Do you, you need to like share your coat? You need to not cheat, when, take more taxes you're supposed to. He's, he's preaching. He's a central figure. And in these two verses, John's gone. I mean, he's there, he's done the baptism, but like Luke is not emphasizing John at all. John does what John says he's going to do and he needs to become less so that Jesus can come onto the scene and be the central figure in this moment. So in our two verses, we see Luke de-emphasizing John and Jesus being central. And we notice also that Luke emphasizes the posture of prayer that Jesus is taking during his baptism. Luke uh, emphasizes a lot of prayer uh, in the life of Jesus, which is a beautiful thing. So in this moment, in this, this prayer, this conversation with God, we have a very rare moment in scripture where we actually have the ability to see or identify the three persons of the one triune God having a individuality but togetherness. I'm making that into one word. That's like my way of saying the triune God. Their individuality yet togetherness aspect of our God is that we see the three persons in one way unique, yet all operating together as one, as one unit in this, in this moment, both and, separate persons, one God. And this moment emphasizes that. And I love that this moment as the launch of Jesus' ministry gets that rare glimpse of the three persons like this and their individuality yet togetherness because that's how Jesus does all of his ministry, individuality yet togetherness with the triune God. The Son, responding to the will of the Father, empowered by the Spirit, that's just the way Jesus operates, that's how it goes, individuality yet togetherness. So it's sort of like, say, is this highlighting this moment, what you see any one of us do, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, you see God doing it. That's God doing it. Whichever one of us is doing, it's God. All of us united, one God. And I love Luke's description of this highlights that prayer is that, um, highlights that relational aspect in all that God is doing. It's, it's this prayer is the relational conversation type um, way in which God is operating. Now we see it um, highlighted in the life of Jesus. So uh, Luke Johnson uh, provides a peek. He says this, in this moment, we as readers are provided access to an empowerment and declaration that takes place between God and Jesus in the communication that is prayer. What I point out here is that this prayer, this communication, this, this relational connectedness of, that is called prayer In it, we see empowerment. Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit for the divine mission that is ahead. After hearing nothing of the last however many years, it's time, and we see in this prayer, empowerment for divine mission. And number two, we see declaration of an affirmation from the Father, affirming the divinity and the belovedness of the Son. So we see both of these together in this moment of prayer, empowerment and declaration, I've heard questions and theories, and just wondering and pondering this little bit of scripture: Why this voice? Who exactly heard it? Who and, and why was it important for them to hear? Like, give us more details. Who engaged? Who saw and could hear this moment? Did the crowds need to hear this affirmation so they could know that Jesus was the Son of God? I don't know, but if they did, like, they didn't all just come immediately to faith, so. I don't know if it was for the crowds. Did Jesus need to hear it? Did Jesus need that affirmation similar to what Mary was able to hear firsthand and treasure in her heart? Did Jesus need it in some way? I don't know. We don't get to know uh, anything about Jesus' thought before he's come to the water or his response to these words being spoken over. We don't actually know. But here's what I would say. What if it's not about who needed to hear the words? What if it's not what needed to happen, but instead we are witnessing a beautiful overflow of the love of the Father for the Son? I've mentioned this before. Some of you know this about me. I'm a words person, I'm a words of affirmation person. And there's a joke in my house. Sometimes I need words when I'm kind of starved or discouraged, starved for something encouraging, Andy can see it in my face and be like, oh, do you need some words? And I'll be like, yes, I need them so badly. Like there is a stance where, and I feel it, not everyone's wired this way, where you like need that encouraging word, right? I don't think that this is that at all. I think instead about the moments where your words just pour out of you. I know I've experienced this as like a mother towards a child. Have you ever looked at a child who you adore and just be like, I just, like my heart could burst. I can't even stand this feeling I have it. So I love you so much. Or looked at a dear friend in your life, maybe a sibling or a spouse or a friend and just looked and been like, I'm so thankful that there's you. I can't imagine not having you. I love you. If you're just like, had the, have the words just spill out, they just had to come out. I'm so happy in the world that there's you. I think that that's more of the tone of what we're having. It's not about who needed to hear it. I think the father's just overflowing with adoration for this beloved son. I think the Eugene Peterson's message version of this phrase captures it well. You are my son, chosen and marked by my love, the pride of my life. This is an overflow of affection, an outburst of delight. And we get to be witnesses of that kind of overflow of delight. And notice this, you guys, it's before Jesus does anything noteworthy. Jesus hasn't done anything yet to deserve. This is like a moment of such grace, right? We get to see this. Jesus hasn't taught a great sermon yet. He hasn't done a miracle. He hasn't healed anybody yet. Like none of that stuff that's amazing that Jesus does, none of that's happened. No wisdom, no parables that we know of, nothing yet. You, just you have my delight and my love. I'm so happy there's you in this moment my heart could burst. That's it before anything has happened. That level of affection That level of affection, you guys, that's how God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That's the level of affection that we're talking about here, enough to send this beloved son to reconcile us back into that love that God also has for us. That's a really big deal. Humanity must be really, 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 really loved by God for this whole story to be about a plan to bring our relationship back together again. There's a whole book about God seeking after reconciliation with humans. In my own devotional time right now, I'm going through the second half of the book of Exodus and goes into crazy detail. I can find my mind wandering about like how to even stitch the pomegranates on the robe of the priest. And I found my mind wandering until I stopped and was like, this matters so much to you, God, that we could have a way to get back into your holy presence. The details are long, you know? There's a lot there, but I commit to reading them because it shows me how very much God's whole story is about finding a way back. But I think that our receptors to receive this level of divine love and affection can be easily numbed. I just think it's true. I can't believe I'm quoting this. Can I have a little bit of grace? Have you guys seen Pretty Woman? I'm not gonna tell you the plot line. We watched it a lot when I was younger and I thought it was a great romantic comedy. I watched it recently and I was like, what? I'm not gonna tell you the plot line. It's not, but anyway, but here's the thing. This stuck with me, like for, for always, for always this line. So our, our young lady has had some mistreatment in her past and she has not always been shown that she's a beloved child of God. Okay, it's not about God at all in the story. But anyway, she's just saying like, hey, people haven't always been very nice to me. And her new friend, Edward, comes back to her and says something like, I think you're actually really special and you've got a lot of special gifts. And her response, Vivian's response, she just looks at him in light of these words of affirmation being spoken over her that she's not used to hearing. And she just says, yeah, the bad stuff's easier to believe. Have you ever noticed that? That line always stuck with me because guys, I think it's so true. The bad stuff just is easier to believe. We are recipients of divine love. This love that God just spoke over the Son, the Father spoke over the Son, is shared towards us as the intended recipients. John 15, 9, Jesus says this, as the Father has loved me, you know that way that you heard that kind of love when I was dripping wet in the Jordan, that love, you know that love? So I have loved you, like the same way. I'm adding some words. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain in this love. This love spoken over me in the Jordan, I've loved you the same way, not just you disciples, but those who will come to believe in me because of you, all of you, I have loved you with that same love that the Father has loved me with. That's why he sent me, because I love you that much. My heart got so welled up this week, you guys. Andy teases me, too, with the words thing, right? He's like, you just need the love, 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 love. Like sometimes if you just need words, like love, 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 is that it? Like you can say it so much. And I was sitting in my living room on Friday afternoon, with this scripture, just sitting in it. And then with John 15, nine, it's the Father loved me, I've loved you. I've just sat with these scriptures before me and just felt like this is just gonna end up like love, 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 white noise. God, what do I do? Like, what is this love? And I literally sat there, and, guys, my heart was like, have you ever had your heart like physically warm but not heartburn? You know that feeling? Like I literally felt physical warmth in my chest. Was, I just, my ear, my ears. That's weird. My eyes welled up with tears. Oh, that's where it was going. I literally had like teary eyes. I said, this is, this is a really big deal and I don't have the words to communicate it. And I found myself thinking like, what is the affirmation? This is a question I think from God to each of us individually. What is the affirmation that your heart needs to hear? What do you need to know from me? I want to tell you. What do you need to know? What has the world told you, told us, that's the bad stuff that's easier to believe? There's a lot of it, I believe. So I'm just, I'll go first since we're having this conversation. I'll tell you a few. Tell me if any of these sound familiar to you. You may have your own, but I'll just put my stuff out there. Number one on my chart, you're not blank enough, whatever it is, F- funny enough, uh, smart enough, uh, hip enough organized enough, you can fill in the blank with anything, you are not enough, is just this thing that comes into my head so much. And by the way, you guys, if we unpack that, that you are not enough, and that's just the way that we like operate under that lie, what a vague goal. Like there's not even like a goal attached to that, it's just like a, well, you never will be, because there's no end to that line of thought. Do you know what I mean? The lies of the enemy I do not think are very creative, they're not new, but shucks, they're so effective. It really just, they stick with you in these ways. It's a lame, lame line, but it's effective somehow. It's ill-defined goal. And I think that that's why it's so potent, because you can never, you could never reach that end. It can't be reached. So you are not enough. That's a, a forerunner. Runner. Here's another one. So you've got some stuff that maybe is either in your past or that you're struggling with totally fine grace of God you've come to Jesus you've you've confessed this you've received forgiveness but you still walk with shame or guilt well that's not truth at all what that is I believe is the lie of the enemy who when you've laid something down at the foot of the cross just walks up behind you picks it up and says oh by the way as you go you still need to carry this just put it in your backpack just keep it it still is yours to carry you can't leave it over there It's really great you confessed it, but take it back, and that's when you see somebody postured and shackled with sense of guilt or shame. Those are lies of the enemy. It's not truth, but the bad stuff is easier to believe. Here's another one. You are what you do. You are. Your value is linked to what you can offer, what you can perform, how well you do it. That is who you are. That's at your core. That's it. When you say it, it doesn't even sound right, does it? You're like, I don't actually believe that. But when it's just in your head and it's not articulated, it actually is really a convincing lie. And we can find it, even if it's not audible, being, I see it being crippling to people's sense of self and sense of identity. Similarly, you are, um, your worth is tied to others' opinion of you. Uh, how well you can put out that immaculate self on Instagram, that self of you, how many likes you get, how much people like you, how many people are, you know, wanting to be your friend, all that stuff, you know, that's that's not who you are. Um, that's not where your worth is tied up. So that's another one that I think is your worth is tied to these things. Those are really powerful lies of the enemy. And then one other one I thought of just this morning that's another false one is that um, uh, the presence of... Suffering or loss or doubt, the the presence of some kind of suffering equals the absence of God's love. That is a false equation. Absolutely not true but there's a lie that says when, when, when things have gone a certain way that that must mean that, that God's affection has been withdrawn. These are all lies, you guys, and I speak them because I think it's important to hear them or other ones that you may know of because I think that our receptors are numb to this love of God sometimes because the bad stuff is just easier to believe. And it's allowed to just remain silent in our heads and we can't just open ourselves up. And these lies, they, they, they steal, kill, and destroy Right? That's what uh, John 10.10 says. That Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they, you, us, may have life and life to the full. These are the things that would destroy that life to the full because quietly in our head, they numb us to the very affectionate delight, the deluge of delight that is the love of God over you. You, you having been created just as you are. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. These words of affirmation and divine delight are passed on to all of us. It's just the truth. You are worth sending a son for. You, me, I'm worth sending a son for. That's really big news. We cannot be numbed to it just as we are with our flaws, with our grumpy decisions, with our mistakes, with the things I say wrong, with my inadequate words, with all of it. Yup, we're still loved. And there's a whole cosmic story, uh, cosmic in scale, to tell us how much. And as I sat there with uh, tears in my eyes, not my ears, in the living room this Friday, just thinking about this love, just allowing myself to sit in this love, I just was like, I, I just don't have eloquent words. There's no words that can like shake this up to identify all of the lies and get rid of them. I don't have words strong enough to do that. I wish I could break through them and smash them to bits. I was like yearning. my God, how do I, I don't know how how to do this with this tool of just speaking. How do I smash them to bits and allow us to just be overpowered by this love with which God first loved us? It's a really big deal. And I just realized like, you guys, this is the truth of it. Living into this truth isn't a one-time smash. It's not ever gonna come by way of one sermon. It just like, it can't. Its daily relationship. And that's where I went back into that text and I realized the beauty of Luke pointing out the prayer posture of Jesus. Jesus is getting baptized in a posture of prayer. Really important. That's a whole relational posturing. It doesn't mean the the written out prayer that starts with you uh, getting onto your knees and folding your hands and saying, dear God. Prayer is the thing that's happening right now as I'm sitting here trying to, to speak the love of God over you while responding to the spirit and being in relationship with the son. This is prayer posture. Our time together, uh, listening, and receiving, and responding, all of this is a posture of prayer. It's a relational posture. And that's the only way that we can actually have a chance of fighting against lies and living fully in the love of God over us is through relationship. And that's what we've been invited into. The love of God is stronger than any lie, and it takes an ongoing relationship to live into that. And I don't have any... More special words. I don't have any way to make that convincing true. And so instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray over us and we're going to worship and we're going to trust that the songs, the words that uh, Emily is going to lead us in are going to be allowed to shape our heart to say, maybe, just maybe. This love is just there for me to open up my hands and like feel it. You guys know it's okay to just sit still and feel the love of God. It's really a beautiful gift. So I'm going to read a little bit of this passage uh, from 1 John 4 over us. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Oh, that's something else, Grace. Sometimes you receive the love of God through the love of the community of believers. So it's just really important to engage and acknowledge and praise God when you, the love that you get to receive it comes through us, one another. Okay, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love God does not know God, because God Is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You guys, this is a story, this is a plot line that you hear a lot in the church, and there's a reason because it's a really beautiful truth, and it's something we're all invited into to be fully submerged into this love and to be come back out of it, born fresh, marked with the grace and the love of the Son by the will of the Father in the power of the Spirit. Jesus, I I just confess the the feeling of inadequacy to, to try to communicate something as great and as cosmic in scale as your amazing love over all of us not just in this room, like the people who need to receive that love in all of the world, that all nations would come to know that there is a divine love that would just be so pursuant, seeking after us. God, I pray that you would, through the Holy Spirit, empower us to be people who can identify and say no to the bad things that are easier to believe because then we can actually be living as people in relationship with you through a posture of prayer that are living out our belovedness because that spills out, like that passage says. It, you, you can't not spill out that love to the world that's so hungry for you. This world around us, Jesus, help us to be people who say yes to your love so that we can be postured outward to like, just to share it, like like throwing confetti of love all over the world around us, how hungry we are for a bigger story, a better story. And God, you've brought it. I thank you, Father, that you have spoken that love over the Son. I thank you, Son, that you transferred that same love out to all of us. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, refine us in such a way as to keep that message um, pure and true in our hearts in a way that actually impacts the way we live our lives. So we love you and ask for your your powerful movement here in our hearts and in our midst today. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodeschicago.com.